This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell and the abyss I stared in that you don't didn't have to last night was the presidential debates. I want to apologize for doing it again, but I did. But on today's This Is Hell, if you do not first and foremost consider everything in terms of race and not ever forward a policy that doesn't, as its top priority, first priority, focus on racial discrimination, then you are being racist. Or is that reducing everything down to race far more detrimental to the real challenges facing the working class and poor who are predominantly people of color? What if focusing only on race leads to policies on racial discrimination that fall far short of their goals over and over again, giving the impression that nothing can be done about institutional racism? We'll learn about all the many failings of racial reductionism when we speak in a few minutes with historian Toure F. Reed, author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Professor Reed teaches 20th century U.S. and Afro-American history at Illinois State University. Dr. Reed's research projects focus principally on the impact of race and class ideologies on African-American civil rights politics and U.S. public policy from the progressive era through the presidency of Barack Obama. Toure is also author of 2008's Not Alms, But Opportunity. The Urban League and the Politics of Racial Uplift, 1910-1950, and is co-author of 2009's Renewing Black Intellectual History, The Ideological and Material Foundations of Black American Thought. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is... Alex, Jerry, Alex, anything new by you? Yeah, just a PSA, everyone. Instead of watching the debates, you could just read a J.G. Ballard book and fall asleep at 8.15 p.m. That sounds a lot better. I fell asleep while reading a book called 500 Soups. <laughs> How many soups did you get to? <laughs> One and a half. <laughs> this week's question from Elle is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email it to myself or Alex. Uh, Chuck at thisishell.com, Alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell trucker cap which you can see right now along with all of our other merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, uh, yeah, we got a bunch. Uh, I'm going to go through the Twitter ones now. How are you interfering in the U.S. elections? Uh, anxiety of the Spectacle says, ballot box bong loads. Corn Jobber says, I'm using six, six, or 60 billion to make gay jokes about the frontrunner. <laughs> Garrett S. says, by writing in Chuck as a candidate. Mm. La Acera says, voting for the Democratic frontrunner. <laughs> How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Paul of America says, rearranging the letters on all the ballots from Michael Bloomberg to alcohol big member. Oh, that's nice. Very good. Kevin O says, by literally punching the ballot. <laughs> Sista Lion Dog-Faced Pony Soldier, oh boy, <laughs> said, I'm doing it with my pedal to the metal. Red State Red says, by organizing carloads of outstate agitators to go to Iowa and now Minnesota. How are you interfering in the U.S. elections? Humbug says, hiring a couple of 12-year-old hackers from Moldova to turn every voting machine into a Mrs. Pac-Man emulator. Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Pac-Man. Sorry for uh, getting that wrong, Miss Pac-Man. Uh, Mr. A.B. says, continuing to vote in elections. Joan Clawford says, I'm going to take a ride on heavy metal and ride it until it explodes. These puns are killing me. Uh, oh, 
two more. Pterodactyl says, by breaching my ethical duties as a dominatrix and zapping Mike Bloomberg's secret shock collar during the next debate. And no, it's not worn around the neck. Oh, boy. Mm. <laughs> and finally, uh, Jeffy D, our own Jeffy D says, not sure, but I've been told it's my fault the Dems can forget about winning the Senate and White House, so I must have been up to some powerful mischief. Why didn't I not foresee meddling turning into a whole bunch of puns about heavy metal? I got to just stop using words. <laughs> I've got to, oh, only things, uh, only using orange. So you didn't foresee that either, right? No. Okay. Just want to make sure we're both on the same Shameful behavior. dumb page. Uh, again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter, email it to us, whatever. Person who wins gets a this is hell trucker cap. You can see that right now at this is hell.com when you click on support. Again, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? We got an email back from Kit. I was asking him about the student strikes that are going on in Britain, and I'm going to share that with you later instead of sharing it with you right now. So listen for that after our guest. Let me put that aside then. The small town paper I got as a gift subscription over the holidays was awaiting me in the mailbox when I got home last night as I was trying to decide if I wanted to put myself through another evening of watching the debates. I wanted a sign of some kind, something, anything to convince me one way or the other to watch or not to watch, and I was really rooting for a sign that told me to stay far away from the debates. Instead, the front page of the Houghton Lake Resorter gave me a very different signal. It seems local authorities are warning drivers to please, please slow down when driving by roadkill. Apparently a speeding driver went by the rotting carcass of a deer without noticing a predator was gnawing on the rotting corpse's flesh, the vampire preying on the dead, sucking the blood out of the carrion. Never saw it coming and was hit by the car that was traveling far too fast, especially according to locals, when passing by roadkill. But it wasn't just any animal tearing at the skin and sinew of the fallen beast. No, the demented, crazed monster dieting on the dead was a bald eagle. And is there any more of a sign to watch the Democratic presidential candidates debate than the national symbol of the United States chewing on the cadaver of an animal who has been hit by a climate change causing car on a road that tears a rift through its habitat, which has been destroyed through resource exploitation and rebuilt as a facsimile of what it once was to attract the exploitative tourism industry? I think not. So yes, I watch the stupid debates again, which are worth watching only for a few seconds. So you can see old people, and no matter how few years he has had on this planet, Pete Buttigieg is wrapped in oldness, just like they are all clothed in their whiteness. Watch so you can see these ancients in age or thought raise their hands like school children. Cannot wait to impress the teacher by knowing the capital of Oregon is Salem. It's humility, humiliating, which is the best part of the debate. If you want to be president, you must debase yourself like a school child begging for approval from the headmaster. I was expecting another disappointing night from Michael Bloomberg because... I knew he would suck last week, and he was far suckier than I imagined he could have ever sucked. And Bloomberg did not disappoint again last night, unless you are a paid aide in the audience last night who was on the clock booing any candidate who had said a bad word about Bloomberg, ever even mentioned Michael Bloomberg's name. But the worst word about Bloomberg was a word he almost uttered himself, boasting about how much money he had given Democratic Party congressional candidates in 2018. He almost said he had bought 
the candidate's victory, but stopped himself halfway through that one-syllable word somehow and changed it to helped. Social media lit up with seemingly everyone catching the mistake. Bloomberg seemed to be openly thinking, I bought candidates' victories in 2018. Why can't I buy an election for myself in 2020? Shortly after CBS, which was carrying the debate, went to a commercial, and not just any commercial, but an ad for the Michael Bloomberg for President campaign. Now, I'm not too sure about how much integrity CBS News has to begin with, but running a paid advertisement by one of the people who's participating in a debate that you are covering, that you're moderating, is at the least tacky and at the most a blatant conflict of interest that certainly gives the perception you'll be favoring one of the candidates. If that perception is accurate or not, it doesn't matter. And that's all conflict of interest is, a matter of perception. And the perception you are giving to viewers, CBS, is you don't see any problem with taking money from one of the candidates participating in a debate that you are mediating, and that perception does not look good on you, appearing to be the elites paying the elites to get their elitist message out to all their elite friends. CBS then really showed their true neoliberal stripes when one of their moderators, Bill Whitaker, asked a question on education policy, but it was his wording that was so weird. Whitaker asked about the potential for public charter schools. Bill, mind explaining how a school can be both public and charter? I thought they were one or the other, unless you're telling me we are now spending public money on privately owned schools that profit from teaching children by giving teachers lower pay, worse benefits, a far more unstable school that may or may not go out of business from year to year, and absolutely no proof of any educational benefit to students with many studies showing that charters actually overall provide a worse education, which makes sense. Worker productivity drops as wages and benefits become lower while workload increases. But Whitaker says public charter, like everyone knows, we have shifted money that once paid for public education and have given it to for-profit schemes that rake it in, lining the pockets of Wall Street investors and the 1% while making learning by students more precarious than ever. When it comes to a disconnect with the issues that affect the working class and poor who are predominantly people of color, Bloomberg shows he tops them all by referring to the racist practice known as redlining in real estate. He refers to it as red lighting, which I think is more about real estate in areas where sex workers congregate. The other billionaire, Tom Steyer, then reveals his neoliberal bona fides when he explains his support for reparations. And as we will learn in a few minutes when we talk to Toure Reed, reparations are meant as a one-time payment, kind of hush money to silence those who have been treated so grievously by a system that is institutional, racial, and class bias. Bloomberg almost saying he bought candidates wasn't the only stumble last night. Buttigieg, mentioning the threat of counter-terrorism, kind of gave you this Manchurian candidate vibe, vibe we've all been getting from Pete. Like he suddenly remembered a room full of ladies drinking tea and forgot that terrorism was the threat not addressing terrorism. Also, when Bernie Sanders was discussing coronavirus and how we need to fund the CDC and all the quote-unquote infectious departments of the U.S. government. Personally, if the U.S. government has infections departments, I'd get rid of them. They sound really gross. Then there was Joe Biden stumbling over nearly everything, he said, getting angrier and angrier that those kids are out there on his lawn, which had been perfectly manicured by the Clinton wing of the party, and getting all the attention. All Biden could do was complain that he wasn't getting a chance to talk, and when he did talk, all he did was complain about not talking while talking. 
In trying to rattle off his accomplishments in foreign policy, Biden said this. China set up a no-fly zone, a zone they said we could not fly through. That's quite a summary there, Joe. He then stumbled through a few more things about China, something about Japan, maybe South Korea. They came out garbled at best, and he concluded by saying, dot, 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 like his list of achievements could go on and on and on and on. Thank God they didn't. Yes, I made the mistake of watching the debates for the second time in this campaign, and I'm really hoping not to make the same mistake again, because every time I watch these things, I'm reminded that this is not much of a democracy now or ever. This is hell. Coming up on This is Hell, neoliberals, identitarianism, and racial reductionism lead pers to persistent the inability for the U.S. to redress the problems facing working class and poor people who are predominantly also of color. More of your answers to this week's question from how we will read what we got back from Kit about the student strikes that are going on in Britain. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. At times, the problems facing the working class and poor, who are, again, predominantly people of color, those problems seem insurmountable with repeated attempts to overcome them, failing each and every time. Now, under neoliberalism, we again are experiencing this inability to redress the needs of the most marginalized. And with our current system's unwillingness to reflect on its own shortcomings, blaming any failings on the individual, the victims themselves, that insurmountable of the challenge to the working class and poor and people of color seems greater than ever. Here to maybe point us in the correct direction, author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, our guest is historian Toure F. Reed. Welcome to This Is Hell, Toure. Hi, Chuck. Thank you for having me. Toure teaches 20th century U.S. and Afro-American history at Illinois State University, and he is also the author of 2008's Not Alms But Opportunity, The Urban League and the Politics of Racial Uplift, 1910 to 1950. And so of those of you here in the Chicago area who are interested in uh, Chicago history, this is a great book to learn about what's happened with what happened with the National Urban League. Uh, so, uh, Toure, let me start with this. You write, although I enthusi enthusiastically cast my ballot for Bernie Sanders in Illinois' 2016 Democratic primary and look forward to voting for him again in 2020. When Senator Bernie Sanders announced his presidential campaign in April 2015, I feared the Democratic Party and the corporate media would succeed in their efforts to cast him as a novelty candidate. I've always appreciated Sanders' politics, but I had presumed that a quarter century of neoliberal hegemony had crowded out space for a return to the public good oriented domestic agenda that we championed, public good oriented, or as Sanders calls it, democratic socialism. Sanders' opponents are using his admiration of uh, Cuba's literacy program against him, with Pete Buttigieg saying prior to last night's debate that the focus should not be on Fidel Castro's literacy programs, but on his human rights record, which Buttigieg condemned. While the word socialism may not be as much of a political cudgel as it was in the past, is Sanders socialism uh, still liability will episodes like these have any impact on upcoming democratic pri uh, primaries or even in the general election well i i think uh that remains to be seen obviously but barack obama was cast as a socialist and um he's not alone bill clinton was cast as a socialist 
Uh, I think most of the Democrats who've run for president in my lifetime have been cast by socialists by the, the far right, even as they were all far from socialist. And in fact, um, just to amplify the point, I remember driving around the Philadelphia suburbs in I think Bill Clinton's second term and seeing a bumper sticker on a car that featured Clinton spelled with a hammer and sickle. It's hard to imagine how a guy who had deregulated uh, you know, telecommunication, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, et cetera, and promoted free trade at the expense of American working people could have been cast as a socialist by if one is invested in in his actual record uh so on on some level i suspect no matter who the democratic candidate would be for 2020 except for perhaps bloomberg uh you know he or she would be cast as a socialist it's not something i'm terribly concerned about and 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 it doesn't sound that you are either, uh, especially since what's resonating with voters is Sanders' appeals to their real-world issues. Do you think then that conservatives just cried wolf one too many times, that people it just numbed people eventually? Uh, I, I don't know if it's that they cried wolf one too many times as much as the Democrats and the Republicans alike have been selling them have been selling voters each a, a bill of goods. And I think what the Sanders uh, insurgency in 2016 revealed, uh, and, and certainly his success in 2020, is the disillusionment that many people, uh, obviously, particularly young people, people 45 and under, uh, have, have felt with the neoliberal orthodoxies. But you just were, use the word neoliberal, uh, neoliberalism, neoliberal. We don't hear this word within the debates. We don't hear this word when it, in 2016 when it was Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders. And the way that you describe their two different approaches is one advanced by Hillary Clinton and the party's corporate wing accepted the limits of the neoliberal regime of upward redistribution, even as it embraced fairness for non-whites, women, gender non-conforming people and other specified populations within the system. The other asserted by Bernie Sanders reaffirmed the public public good framework established during the New Deal and carried through the post-war period that was crucial to both the exponential growth of the American middle class and the modern civil rights movement. So we have this situation where Hillary Clinton embraces neoliberalism, which is some, a term that nobody in the media ever uses. So uh, if you ask people what it meant, they wouldn't know what it means. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders is, people are saying he's a democratic socialist, but yet what he's do- actually doing is going back to a New Deal. Can we even have a discussion over what direction we should be going in when we can't even have a discussion where the word neoliberalism is employed? Well, you know, I think that people don't use the word neoliberalism. Uh, at, at the very least, the punditry aren't invested in or have no interest in using that world, and certainly the, the uh, most of the candidates, uh, Democratic candidates, have no use in using that world because they embrace the orthodoxies. Um, I don't know that we need the word in order to advance the cause of social justice, because I think what we need is the experience. And so many people find themselves on the margins these days, and and, and that's certainly not new. Uh, when I hear my students reflect on their discomfort with um, you know graduating into what's in effect a uh, depressed labor market, I think to myself, well, I graduated from college in 1992, and, and I ended up temping for being a permanent temporary employee for an entire year back then. So even us Gen Xers have some experience with 
the problems uh, associated with, uh, you know, Reaganism, right? Um, and and uh, that was the dawn of Clintonism for me. So I think the word matters less than the lived experience, and that may be why the word socialism isn't uh, hobbling Sanders, at least at, at this stage of the game, uh, along with the fact that, uh, as you you have pointed to, and I, I guess I, I did as well, that the Republicans have, have just you overused that term. Why does Sanders call himself a Democratic Socialist? Why not simply say, I'm a New Deal Democrat? Or is New Deal Democrat more of a negative term in U.S. politics as saying that you're a democratic socialist. Is democratic socialist more of an attractive framing? Why not just say I'm a New Deal Democrat? Yeah, I don't know why he doesn't, but I presume it's because his ambitions are grander than New Deal democracy. And I, and I would probably put money on that. Uh, New Deal Democracy had its limitations, and and one of them being the the fundamental end game of trying to um, create a a, a system of capitalism in which uh, the class conflict was moderated uh, by bureaucracy, and that worked until it didn't. I mean, it worked reasonably well, and was was certainly crucial to the expansion of the American middle class, and. Um, you know, helped to lay the foundation for the modern civil rights movement in a, in a couple few different ways. But the problem, when you get down to it, was that um, uh, the ruling class was not really game for that, right, and, and as far as the long game was concerned, that once Keynesianism excesses came to fruition, uh, then uh, capital had turned on that kind of uh, that system of capitalism. You write that World War II dampened the New Deal's social democratic potential, which was always restrained by Roosevelt's overarching mission to create a sustainable model of capitalism, both by stifling labor and civil rights militancy and by displacing the regulatory state model of government stewardship of the nation's economy in favor of the more conservative growth-oriented compensatory model. To what degree do you think Sanders would put those same restraints on the social democratic potential of our revolution, as he calls it? Well, um, since I don't work for the Sanders campaign, I would have to speculate. One of the things that distinguishes Sanders' um, approach to uh, to the proper function of government is that there is, as you point to, a divide between the best of New Deal liberalism and what post-war liberalism looks like. And the best of New Deal liberalism, you know, would have been somewhere on the social democratic spectrum. I mean, it included uh, affordable, publicly financed uh, housing uh, that 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 among other things wasn't modeled on warehousing at least in the in the 30s and and through the second world war but rather would provide working people uh really good attractive affordable housing uh it obviously included regulation of labor markets uh, by way of uh, um, the National Labor Relations Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, et cetera. And in the post-war era, but, but during the New Deal, there was a, a tension between the regulatory state and the compensatory state. Well, the compensatory state model was much less interventionist uh, and would take hold following the, uh, or during the Second World War, it would take off during the Second World War and would fuel the post-war um, growth of, of the, the American middle class and the American economy writ large. Uh, and that, I think, is 
not not really social democratic. Um, I think the compensatory state model or the commercial Keynesian model really has its limitations, and and Sanders is distinct. Uh, you know, I think Sanders has distinguished himself anyway from the compensatory state model. You write that the comparative strength of American capital by World War II ensured that New Deal liberalism would be far removed from socialism. Will the strength of American capital always keep the U.S. from being anything close to a social democracy? Hmm. Uh, you know, that remains to be seen. That's a good response. That's a very good response. <laughs> so, There's certain things it's best just to hedge your bet. Exactly, exactly. So uh, in 1947, uh, well, let me just start with your writing. In the final State of the Union on July, uh, January 11th, 1944, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt laid out what he termed a second Bill of Rights updated for the industrial age, which would include the right to a job, a living wage, a decent home and health care. Uh, but this did not pass, indeed, by 1947 a combined Republican and Dixiecrat congressional supermajority swiftly rolled back <clears throat> workers' rights and tamped down labor militancy. And then you write that the same thing happens after FDR's death when uh, Truman tries to launch the fair deal in 1948. Truman won the 1948 presidential election. The Democrats had huge victories in the House and Senate as well, giving them control of both chambers. So were FDR and Trump just out of step with the rest of the country? What explains why even their own party wouldn't support the fair deal and wouldn't support the second Bill of Rights? Oh, well, um, with respect to Truman, I mean, the, the big problem in the fair deal, uh, one of the big problems was, of course, the divide between the Northern Democrats and the Southern Democrats. And so uh, one crucial distinction is that the, the, the divisions within the Democratic coalition itself uh, were really crucial to uh, uh, secure, to, to uh, undercutting uh, the continuation of Roosevelt's vision for, the, uh, for American democracy, for industrial, for the kind of vision of industrial democracy. Uh, so I think I missed part of the, the question, but um, there, there is at least that crucial distinction. Uh, southern states understood on some level that their fortunes hinged on, on cheap labor, right? Uh, and while that wasn't to the benefit of the working people in the southern states, the you know, ele elected officials don't necessarily effectively represent working people. So that's, that's one problem for the 40s. Now, you're making um, an analogy, uh, I think, for Trump and the Republican Party today. Did I, did I catch that right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, with Trump, Trump's victory, and I, I think his path to victory is a, was a lot easier than, than Sanders' path to victory for a crucial reason, is that Trump's victory, I think, reflected ongoing tensions within the Republican Party between uh, its leadership and the base. And the base had, had for many, many years since Nixon, uh, if, if not Reagan, been, been courting blue-collar uh, disaffected blue-collar whites, uh, with some success, and uh, but but not 100% lock, right? But but certainly had had some success doing so, race baiting and and class baiting, yada yada yada. And of course, what's interesting about the GOP is that while they court those people with the promise of 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 uh, you know throwing various people of color or 
um, you know, immigrants, of course, um, abortionists, et cetera, under the bus, at least with respect to the economic tensions uh, that that um, attracted or economic issues that attracted that element of, of the base, the, the so-called Reagan Democrats, <clears throat> they haven't delivered anything for them, right? I mean, when you get down to it, as much as I like to hate Bill Clinton for NAFTA, uh, it, it's not like NAFTA's origins didn't extend back to George Herbert Walker Bush's days, right? Um, it's, it's, so in that context, Trump, I think, um, was sort of the natural – well, natural is not the best word. Trump was uh, kind of organic outgrowth, not that organic's any better than natural, of the tension within the, in the Republican Party. And, of course, I don't think he's doing much of anything for working people either, other than creating a spectacle of himself, uh, and, or at least of democracy, a spectacle of, of democracy, and presenting himself as a champion of the little guy. But Trump, I think, was able to, to win because the GOP understood his appeal with the base, understood that if they tamped down on Trump, that the, that might depress turnout for them, which they definitely did not want. And they also understood that when you got down to it, even as Trump presented himself as an economic populist, he was not. And so they would still get everything they wanted out of Trump while, um, you know, keeping the base happy. One of the things I really don't get is that the Trump campaign always says they want to make America great again. And the America that they point to is the era of the New Deal. You write even Republican President Dwight Eisenhower's America continued to reflect the New Deal's influence. Indeed, by the late 1950s, one third of the workforce was unionized. Unionized workers and even a growing number of non-unionized workers had access to employer-sponsored health insurance plans, which uh, major employers had just begun to establish as an alternative to a tax payer-funded health care system, robust state contributions to public higher education ensured that tuition at public universities was either free or extremely inexpensive, and the highest marginal income tax rate was about 91%. Under Eisenhower, you point out, that goes down to about 75%, but this continues. These New Deal programs uh, continue. Do you believe this is the area, the era that Trump wants to get back to when he says he wants to make America great again? And can you only make America great again by embracing the New Deal policies of FDR that are now being incorporated by Bernie Sanders' campaign? Yeah. So to the first answer, no. Trump has no interest in um, following that kind of blueprint, right, that statist uh, roadmap to or, or blueprint to um, uh uh, output mobility for the masses of, of working people, right? He's, he's got no interest in pursuing redistributive policies, downward redistributive policies, upward redistributive policies, absolutely. But Trump is not remotely invested in redistributing wealth downwardly. At best, he's an, a pro-growth Republican, at best. Um, to the second question, yes, uh, I, I think you'd have to have state intervention in labor and housing markets on the New Deal or, or even more ambitious model to get America back to uh, the American middle class, specifically, on, on a solid footing. What, what explains that disconnect between Trump's supporters and knowing or believing that this was the era when America was great and then not looking at the policies that made it great. What explains their inability to realize that it was New Deal policies that made America great? Well, I, I think that gets down to about 
uh, let's see how long ago was Reagan elected. Uh, that that gets down to a few decades worth of um, neoliberal hegemony, right? I mean, I don't know too many people who know that aspect, um, you know, that stretch of American history, right? I've had conversations over the decades now with Americans who were, in fact, alive at the time during the 1950s and, and 60s, uh, who had no idea that you know public higher education used to be free or um, or extremely affordable, right? And these sometimes these are people who had attended public universities, and and that should have been clear. Public universities used to be free or extremely affordable. Obviously, public primary and secondary schools are taxpayer funded to this day. Um, I have people. I've, had conversations with people who are alive who would have paid taxes um, back in that era, who likewise have no idea what the tax codes were like back then, or people who are, again, alive in that era who had no idea what percentage of the workforce was unionized or how significant unionization was to the expansion of the American middle class. And so there is a kind of collective, collective amnesia, but the collective amnesia didn't just happen, right? We've had since the 80s uh, a push to obliterate the public good consciousness, uh, public good framework of government from the consciousness of the American people. And by the 90s, that had become bipartisan consensus. I often tell people to reflect on how many times in 2016, 2008, or 2012. When President Obama and President Clinton, or sorry, President Clinton, that's an interesting slip, when President Obama and Hillary Clinton were uh, campaigning for, for the presidency, how many times each of them mentioned Franklin Roosevelt in any, in any light versus how many times they rhapsodized about Reagan? And while I've never sat down and done the counting, I think I had a dream about that once, and it, it was a really disturbing dream, but I've never sat down and gone through their, their stump speeches and counted uh, the number of times they mentioned Reagan versus Roosevelt. I know having listened to them uh, over the years, and I should say it's not just 2008, 2012, and, and 2016, it's all points in between, they mentioned and sang the praises of Reagan in really bizarre ahistorical terms, while often never even mentioning Roosevelt. But the story we're told about the public good framework is that it all ended, all of the concerns for the public good, because it proved to be too expensive, unaffordable, it led to unemployment and inflation and stagflation, and that was all caused by uh, the public good framework, a tax burden so heavy it was unbearable for the citizenry and unsustainable for the economy, and now we have the uh, highest tax rate of half of what it was in the 1960s. Has the public good framework already proved to be unsustainable because of the 1970s economic downturn and its burden on taxpayers, as we're told by the media over and over again? Well, certainly the crisis of the Keynesian consensus created this opportunity for the new right to um, launch its assault on the Keynesian consensus. But I, I think it's worth noting that the crisis in laissez-faire capitalism created the opportunity for the public good framework for um, American democracy, right? And we are at a kind of crisis point now. Um, I mean, certainly there are a number of things, that, a number of pressing issues that, that we're facing. Even if the economy is st statistically good for some people, it's obviously statistically horrific for masses of people. 
we likewise um, are in the midst of maybe killing ourselves one SUV at a time uh, in on a shorter time frame than any of us could have imagined before we know it will be the planet Venus, I guess. But anyway, and not the loving part of Venus, but the overheated part of, of Venus. And I think this crisis point certainly creates an opportunity to press ahead on, the, on a return to the public good model of governance. We know at this moment that um, where we are now isn't sustainable, at least if we want to live in a democracy. Where we are is sustainable if we are invested in, if we're all committed to living in some sort of author- right-wing authoritarian um, Ayn Rand fantasy state. But um, if, if we reject that, and I hope most of us do, I know Paul Ryan would love that. Um, but but um, if the masses of us reject that, I think we can we can find ourselves on a much better path. You write that if the strength of the Sanders primary challenge gave reason to believe that neoliberalism's grip on the electorate's public or political imagination had weakened, the Democratic and identitarian left backlash to Sanders and his supporters revealed a deeply rooted reactionary tendency in contemporary liberal discourse related to race and inequality. To you, what explains that reactionary tendency in liberalism? Is there something inherent in liberalism that is reactionary when it comes to race and inequality? Well, I don't know that there's something inherent to liberalism, but there's certainly, um, in its current incarnation, uh, I think I, I think the identity politics, the appeal of identity politics uh, for sort of Clinton-style Democrats is that it functions as a kind of um, left-wing uh, um, defense uh, of neoliberalism, right? It's it's sort of the the left flank of the neoliberal movement um, or liberal, neoliberal politics. Now, of course, I do make the argument in uh, in the book that the embrace of a kind of race reductionist framework, which is going to get us a crucial facet of a, a facet of a identity politics, goes back quite a ways. I mean, it predates the Clinton administration. You can see it. Um, you can see versions of it. Um, you know, albeit with different monikers, during the Johnson administration, the Kennedy and Johnson administration, and you can see versions of that among liberal academics and, and intellectuals. Um, you know, in the immediate post-war. Era, the appeal of those frameworks, and this this might be a case for something inherent to, to liberalism. The appeal of those frameworks, though, of the race reductionist frameworks, uh, and specifically, it'll be constructs like ethnic cycle theory, or sorry, eth- ethnic pluralism. Uh, ethnic cycle is my first book. Ethnic pluralism, uh, and. Um, uh, culture of poverty, underclass ideology, etc., is that they offer a language to talk about inequality, that uh, to talk about racial inequality. So again, they offer a, a language, a vocabulary, uh, to discuss um, you know racial inequality that abstracts racial inequality from the social mechanisms, the political economic mechanisms, I should say, that are really responsible for enduring racial inequities. And so these frameworks, these race reductionist frameworks offer an escape hatch. They become exceptionalism or exceptionalist to capitalism, right? They are exceptional to capitalism. They are not really fundamentally what capitalism is about. In capitalism, you always have to have losers. It, it is easier for the system to function if one presumes that those losers were born to be losers. And that's the work that race does. Race treats as natural 
inequities that are engendered by social processes. And in America, that's going to be capitalism. And you point out that Hillary Clinton uh, uses race reductionism a lot. While during the 2016 campaign, Bernie Sanders was being pilloried, and he is again this time for being a class reductionist. You're right, Hillary Clinton deployed the language of structural racism and intersectionality to obscure the impact of her husband's legislative agenda on disproportionately black voters. Without so much as a hint of irony, Secretary Clinton asserted that Sanders' calls for banking regulations and redistributive policies were of little importance to black and brown Americans as such proposals would do nothing to end the systemic racism that she claimed was the root cause of the subprime mortgage crisis and mass incarceration. Was systemic racism the root cause of the mortgage crisis and mass incarceration? Um, I would say not, but but certainly racism is a contributing factor. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was the root cause at all, though. Um, the, um, the problem of mass incarceration, uh, the, the contention that, that mass incarceration is owed to the war on drugs, I, I think is kind of difficult to defend um, since the process of mass incarceration actually precedes the war on drugs, right? Um, and what you have in the expansion of the inmate population is the convergence of a lot of things. But among the issues, that, among the, the things, um, developments that are contributing to mass incarceration would be the long-term effects of deindustrialization and automation. And of course, uh, what people call concentrated poverty. And that will take us back to the 1950s and 60s, right? Um, the 1960s, of course, will witness, um, will be sort of ground zero for the push for tough on crime uh, you know, legislation and policies. And again, uh, those tough on crime, the, the calls for tough on t- crime legislation and, and policing uh, was a direct response, not just to 60s radicals. I mean, that was, that was certainly a facet of it, and that would in- include my my dad. I mean, I, I remember uh, vaguely um, being harassed by the police um, in in our home in Southwest Atlanta when I was a child. So that that was a thing, no question about that. But but fundamentally, what you've got is an explosion in the uh, rates of violent crimes that are taking place in in central cities, and um, this becomes a pretext for uh, you know local government, state governments. Black and and white, but uh, you know, citizens demanding stronger law enforcement, right? So the growth in mass incarceration predates the the war on drugs, and it's not just the black inmate population that expands in that time period. It's also the white and Latino inmate population that that expands in that time period. But I but I want to amplify something on this point. Which is that when I say that deindustrialization and automation are part of the mix of understanding where mass incarceration comes from, what I'm stressing is something that progressives used to stress, but they don't so much anymore. And that is the correlation between income inequality, poverty and unemployment, and violent crimes and property crimes, which comprise the, the weight 
combined, uh, violent crimes and property crimes, comprise the weight of um, the crimes that are committed, uh, or sorry, the, the weight of the crimes in which people are convicted of, right? I think violent crimes are close to 50, just under 50% or something like that. Uh, and, and so what I'm getting at is that if you don't have a class analysis to explain the high rates of crime and uh, the like in you know, central cities. What you have is a race analysis that can get you mass incarceration. So that's certainly partly what happened, at least at the, but when you get to the war on drugs, um, I think it's pretty clear that, that Reagan and then Clinton after him would use a language, well, I'll be blunt, will use racist tropes to make a case for mass and you know for policies that will give us that will will you know amplify a process that was going on in the form of mass incarceration, right? They'll, they'll absolutely use a language of, of that's clearly, I think, unambiguously racist, super predator. I mean, what what the hell is that if that's not racist? I mean, this is someone who's born to be a criminal, right, and a dangerous criminal. Um, but nevertheless, you you have to then consider if you don't consider the class um, implications or class origins of crime then what you get, again, is this kind of underclass contention that there's a such thing, let's say, as an epidemic of, of black male violence. If you're a black male, and I am one, the idea that you're born to be a criminal and a violent criminal is outrageous, but it's obviously racist, too. Is race reductionism then cover for racism, a red herring making everything about race all the time in order to not make any progress on the challenges facing people of color? Does race reductionism allow racism to persist? Well, I wouldn't. Hmm, that's a really interesting question that I would have to give a little more thought than I probably have time to. But what I but I would say is that the framework certainly doesn't reject some of the crucial presumptions that make sense to cast as racist, right? I mean, the framework often enough presumes that there is something intrinsic to members of racial groups um, that distinguish them from each other. And that, I would say, is by definition racist. But, I, but I, what complicates my answer to your question is that function out, the, the functional, um, the way that race reduction, reductionism functions is certainly to create opportunities, liberal race reduction, the, the way that liberal race reductionism functions is certainly to create, op create opportunities for the black professional managerial class, right? I mean, it, black and brown professional managerial class. So it's certainly making the case, race reductionists are certainly making the case for inclusion. But what they're looking past is the fact that opportunities for all no matter what our race, um, sex, sexual orientation, et cetera, are actually declining and have been declining since, uh, I don't know, the, the 70s, right? Since somewhere between 73 and 78, depending on what statistics you want to look at. So we're certainly enabling ongoing inequality. Last night during the debates, Tom Steyer said that he was for reparations. You write both President Obama's post-racial presidency and Ta-Nehisi's Coates' post-post-racial reparations politics have complemented neoliberalism's market-friendly anti-welfare state politics while offering poor and working class African Americans cathartic, symbolic, 
oratorical wins as alternatives to substantive improvements in their material lives. Given the 2020 Democratic presidential hopefuls, and you list those who were in the race at the time your book went to press, have each expressed interest in reparations as part of a larger conversation on the racial wealth gap. Some will blanch at the statement, but the devil is in the details. Is reparations hush money so the poor and working class, especially those of color, will keep quiet about class politics? Is it nothing more than a neoliberal payoff or silence, a bribe to not start thinking about a class-based revolution, no matter your identity? I tend to think of reparations in its, um, I think, most common form at at this point, but there's so many forms, uh, as a kind of, um, what's the best way to put this? I have a stock phrase that I use. It's a racial wealth management project um, in the best case scenario. So rather than casting it as hush money to keep the black working class and and poor quiet, I would cast it as more um, a project that would benefit, uh, when when you get down to what it might practically look like, it's a it would be a project that might benefit um you know the again black black uh professional managerial class types but with the expectation that the rewards would trickle down to the masses um so Elizabeth Warren, uh, unless something has changed recently, had proposed a, a, a project, uh, a program that would um, help to swell the ranks of black entrepreneurs, presuming that that increasing the number of black entrepreneurs would necessarily pay dividends for black working people. Last I checked, small businesses uh, as a class tend to oppose often enough, not just increasing the minimum wage, but in some instances, the idea of a minimum wage altogether. They often enough oppose, you know, employer-sponsored health care because they don't want to pay it, right? Uh, the margins are, are, are too too tight for that. So I, I am not remotely convinced that growing the ranks of black entrepreneurs, small businesses, would have any significant impact on black Americans today any more than it did in the days of, or did or would have in the days of Marcus Garvey. Um, but if you are someone who is an aspirant, an, an aspirant entrepreneur who happens to be black, then certainly this might be appealing to you um, in, in much the same ways that such projects, in much the same way that Nixon's black capitalism was appealing to such individuals back in that era. You write that the liberal response to racial discrimination and institutional racism is seemingly over and over again a cultural tutelage and interracial understanding in order to overcome racial animus. And you write through interactions across racial lines, though, I'm sorry, though interactions across racial lines might in the long run undercut racial animus, it's not clear how mentoring for black boys or cultural competency training for white people would achieve common ground in the form of neighborhood integration. Would ending racial animus solve all of the problems faced by working class and poor people of color? Is ending racial animus a proper goal in fighting for what is best for working class and poor people of color? Well, and that, that I guess, is um, what you read is from the conclusion of the book and a critique of uh, Raj Chetty's et al.'s uh, meta-analysis of two generations of um, black uh, 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 black Americans uh, as an assessment of the racial 
um, the role of wealth and race in um, shaping outcomes for, for blacks across generations. And what, one of the things that was interesting about that project uh, or their and others um, uh, blueprint for success, which comes down to, or for racial equality, which comes down to, as you said, cultural tutelage and uh, the like, is that this is an old school project. It goes back to the pre-New Deal era, um, and it's a topic of my first book. It, you know, black civic reformers made much the same case that the best way to open opportunities for blacks was cultural tutelage for whites, uh, sorry, for, for black working people, of course, and poor blacks, um, but also by extension uh, whites, because such demonstrations of black competency would um, ultimately black reformers often uh, often argued uh, would would ultimately dispel racist stereotypes among whites and you know that project didn't work well and it didn't work well for a lot of reasons but in the current era I don't think it would work well only because it doesn't address the sources of material inequities. Now, the old school reformers, I think, were on to something, even as the basic framework that they operated with 100 years ago was incapable of redressing racial inequalities. Um, they were on to something insofar as they also presumed that prejudice was owed to ignorance. And what we would find as we you know, get to the civil rights era uh, forward is that the opening of of real opportunities to black people or for black people by way of state intervention, right? By way of policies like fair housing legislation or um, affirmative action or what would eventually be called affirmative action, not only help to grow the ranks of the black middle class and to create a real black middle class uh, for the first time, but I think with blacks to one degree or another, and this has certainly certainly happened with white ethnics, those interactions that they, that black and white people had with whites as neighbors and coworkers and the like certainly helped to reduce overt racial animus. I think that's that was kind of crucial to how President Obama became President Obama. But but the end that end that end was the product not of an effort simply to end racial animus. It was that end um, really was owed to efforts to create opportunities for black people uh, to move up the ladder. We know today um, at least some of us know that simply enforcing uh, anti-discrimination policy just isn't enough, right? Anti-discrimination policy helped. Uh, it's you know why my parents could be white-collar professionals and why I can be too. But so thank you, Civil Rights Act of 1964, and thank you, Civil Rights Act of 1968. They were very important. But in the context of deindustrialization, um, the Civil Rights Act, the great victories, legislative victories of the Civil Rights movement came, uh, you know, uh, 25 years too late to make a difference for, you know, poor and make a huge difference for poor and working class blacks. It made some difference for them, but it made it, it really, those victories came too late to make a huge difference for uh, working class blacks. So simply focusing on racial animus is kind of, you know, looking past the point, right? Simply focusing on redressing racial animus. Uh, what we need is material opportunities for people. We have been speaking with historian Toure F. Reed, author of Toward Freedom, the Case Against Race Reductionism. Toure teaches 20th century U.S. and Afro-American history at Illinois State University. And Toure, if you can explain to me why in Bloomington, Illinois, 
It costs twice as much money to get the pantograph delivered to your house than it does the New York Times. I would really appreciate that. It's been driving me nuts. The last time I was down, 158 bucks for one month of the pantograph. Are you serious? I am not kidding you. 150. So here's my. Go ahead. So here's my question to you. You read the pantograph? <laughs> when I am in Bloomington. <laughs> Okay, well, I rely on other people. I'm a free rider. I'm a pantograph free rider. I rely on people I know who hate themselves and thus subscribe to the pantograph, and then I ask them what's going on. <laughs> See? That's how I do it. Yeah, and then it, if you have a subscription to it, trying to go and look at it online is nearly impossible. Uh, it's only I only know this from that my father-in-law. That's all I know from my father-in-law. So what, I got one last question for you, Toure, and our final question okay. for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate the response, and I think that's where this one's going to lie. You write modern liberal uh, anti-poverty efforts have have generally bound macroeconomic growth agendas to a mix of anti-discrimination policies, cultural tutelage, job training, and punitive measures ranging from welfare reform to the carceral state, thus democratic policymakers from the war on poverty through the post-racial presidency of the nation's first black commander-in-chief have not simply eschewed progressive redistributive policies, economic policies in favor of conservative growth politics. They have, in fact, used a language of race racial reductionism to advance this agenda. In your opinion, then, is modern liberalism as it stands today both conservative and racist? Um, yeah. But, but no, I, I, think, I think it is. Um, modern liberalism certainly tilts in a direction of economic conservatism. Uh, specifically. Technically, um, or at least one can make a, a compelling case that modern liberalism values inclusion. I, I value inclusion. I, I value diversity. But diversity means a lot of things to a lot of people. And where the answer to modern liberalism being racist um, might be yes, is that often enough what um, liberals mean by culture is actually better understood as race. And, and so diversity discourse, and this is something I wasn't alive to until I started doing, um, serving on diversity committees. I realized when I served on diversity, university diversity committees that often enough what I meant by diversity and what some of my colleagues meant by diversity were two different things. Often enough for many liberals, what diversity means is it, it, it presumes that, um, again, uh, there's something intrinsic to members of racial, ethnic, um, you know, groups, et cetera, that, that distinguish them from others. And the end game for diversity for people who presume that is a pluralist framework. It's, much, it's just an update of ethnic pluralism. Um, and so they presume that we can add value to the workplace by bringing in a black person who, you know, shares a mind with 40 40-something million other black Americans, right? I mean, that this black person will be the representative, essentially, of 40 million other, uh, more than 40 million other black Americans. Or uh, um, a Latina who likewise is presumed to share the mind of, uh, you know, tens of millions of, of Latinos uh, in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are the black person um, or brown person in those circumstances. Some, some black, brown people are fine with this. I am horrified by it because people presume that there is something about you that as a black person 
that makes you the other, and it makes you the permanent unknowable other. And and again, I think for some people, and, and this is part of Coates's hook, um, that becomes a kind of I don't know job description, right? Um, being the spokesperson for the race, right? Being the voice of millions of people, as if we have one voice, right? White people get to be complicated. Why don't black people get to be complicated? Uh, or Latinos, et cetera, right? But um, if you don't share that worldview, then uh, it's, you know, racist. Like Miss Morello from Everybody Hates Chris is what you get a lot of. I really appreciate uh, you being on the show this week. We have been speaking with Toure Reed, author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, and definitely the best part of his bio at his Illinois State University page is, in addition to being a historian of African-American and 20th century U.S. history, Dr. Reed is a shred guitar enthusiast. So I really appreciate you taking time away from your shred guitar enthusiasm to be on our show this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. We'll get you caught up on what Kit wrote us about the British student strike on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry this week's question from Al is how are you meddling in the US elections how are you meddling in the US elections Alex do you have any more responses to this week's question from hell yeah we got a bunch so I'll go through some of them right now how are you meddling in the US elections Sarah M says hanging chads <laughs> Harold J says I'm setting up dozens of bogus pro Gabbard and Steyer Steyer or Steyer 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 MySpace accounts to stir the pot <laughs> Nikki says, spreading artificial false consciousness. <laughs> that's nice. And uh, Walter M says, by spreading peace and joy in the world. Ah, oh, that's very Ronaldo sweet. M says, paying people in cash to vote for me. <laughs> and finally, Julie M says, by handing out unsharpened number two pencils to the four people waiting in line at my precinct polling place. If you win this week's question from hell, if you have our favorite answer to this week's question, you get a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now, along with all of our other merch at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Uh, Nandini Chami will be on to talk about her Roar Magazine essay, Data Governance and the New Frontiers of Resistance. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time, thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. And find out all of the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell and see if you have one. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex and our guest, Toure Reed, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>